Hello, Hope Church family, and as promised, we will be back in Matthew chapter 3 this week. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3. However, we're not going to spend a lot of time in this passage. Last week I talked about the very important role that the Pharisees and Sadducees play in this book. And I'd said that just out of the passage last week, we're going to kind of take a couple weeks to go through it uh, and look a little bit more closely at these things that are now setting up in this very pivotal chapter, setting up the rest of the book of Matthew. And these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, play such an important role in this book. Uh, and really not just in this book, but in the New Testament in general. Why? Because even Paul, who wrote such a, a big part of the New Testament, was a Pharisee. And so even to understand a lot of Paul's writings and why Paul knows what it is to confront the Jewish people in certain aspects, like in the book of Galatians or when he talks about it in Philippians, or it comes from his education. It comes from growing up in this lifestyle. And so in order to really understand the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I want to give you just a brief glimpse about them. Now, it may be difficult, but I want you to imagine a place you live that has more than two political parties, but for the most part, two political parties basically run the show. Uh, and that show in, in Israel would have been called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, a while ago, I said that there was other political parties. Um, the third group was the Essenes, and the fourth group was the Zealots. But the Zealots weren't really organized. They basically just lived to fight the Roman government. And by fight, I mean they were actually called dagger people, and the word that we have for terrorist comes from them. They would uh, hunt down these government officials, tax collectors, to uh, stab them with daggers they would hide in their clothing. So we kind of take the zealots out of it a little bit because they really weren't uh, running for office, if you will. And the Essenes were, uh, again, just another sect, but didn't have representation in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. And again, I, I know it's tough, but just imagine that the Sadducees and Pharisees, or that your governing political system was made up of people who said that they knew what was best, but it just always seemed like they were looking out for themselves. In fact, the majority, if not all of them, had a lot of money and uh, really operated in a way to make sure they kept their money and they kept their popular. I, I know it's difficult, but just please imagine with me if you can that have growing up in a political spectrum like this, and you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the reason I want to talk about them at such length is for one reason, and that is I want to confront self-righteousness in our own life confront self-righteousness in our own life. In fact, that's the first point that I want to mention, and you can write it down, is confronting self-righteousness in our own life. This is never fun. This is never exciting. This is never something that we enjoy doing. 
and I'll explain why as we go through. But I want you to turn again, Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to start and read just verses 7 through 10. And again, this is John the Baptist. Uh, He's out. We're told that this is the person that Isaiah chapter 40 tells us about, the voice calling in the wilderness, uh, making the path straight for people to meet the Messiah when he comes. Uh, John is a prophet and he's baptizing. People are confessing their sins. They're being baptized. And now we pick it up in verse 7. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that one out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a harsh saying in many ways. Number one, just the brood of vipers. We don't really, now, if you're like me, you don't care for snakes that much. So just the thought of a brood of vipers. In fact, a couple years ago, I was uh, teaching a message and I wanted to actually have a video of a bunch of snakes in a pit crawling all over each other. And everyone said, no, please do not do that. I will never come back to church. So I will save you yet again from not making you watch that. But the brood of vipers in in ancient times, one, speaking to Jewish people, the the viper or the poisonous snake has a direct correlation to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that is the idea of sin came from this serpent. But a viper was extremely deadly. A viper was something that if you stepped near their pit or fell into a pit of vipers or a brood of vipers, uh, death was imminent. You would more than likely get bit. But this exact word here, brood, even goes a little deeper. It was believed in ancient times that when vipers were born, that they actually ate their way out of their mother, uh, which isn't true, but it was a belief. And for a child to harm, to go after, or to kill a parent would carry such, and especially at this time, such a disgraceful or disgusting act Uh, Thus, the story when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son that he turns his back on his father, that would carry so much more weight to that story than it would today. And so when he says, you brood of vipers, this was incredibly hostile in what he's saying. He's saying that here you are, you call yourselves representatives of God, and yet you harm God. Uh, You harm the very thing that you claim to be a child Uh, So there is a deeper meaning here from John as he's talking to these Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, Very, very harsh, and he's confronting them on a couple things that we are going to look through as we confront this self-righteousness in our own life. But I want to kind of clarify the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, It's very difficult. Really, they came into existence about 150 to 180 years before this, uh, during the time of the um, 400 years of silence that we call it. They kind of instituted themselves. Uh, Little is known where they came from, how they got their names, and even less so about the Sadducees than the Pharisees. But I wanted to kind of make some distinctions because the two actually did not get along. What The only time they really showed unity in any way is when they're going after John the Baptist 
and when they're going after Jesus. And please understand, they're not there to hear John's message. They're there to find out about John to try to ruin him. Same thing when they go to hear Jesus. But number one, I want to look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees, again, were more than likely wealthy. Uh, the Pharisees, um, they had the popular vote, if you will. In other words, the majority of people liked them. They followed the law and they set themselves up as uh, they did good and they were looking out for everyone, although most of the time they were looking out for themselves. So the people actually cared more for the Pharisees than they did the Sadducees, which I'll go into a little bit more detail in a second. Um, the Pharisees stressed adhering to the law so much that they began to write laws on top of the laws of Moses and the laws that you find in the Old Testament, uh, to the point where when they confront Jesus or they confront disciples and they say, but the law says, Jesus says, basically, that wasn't my father's law. That was something you added to it. Uh, so don't, Jesus is like, don't, don't get confused here, folks. Like, those are your laws. And so they, they had these laws, but then they made laws to make sure that they didn't get near those laws. They, they made extra laws for themselves and then held everybody else to those laws as well because they voted them into being. Uh, and again, even if you look at some of the laws that they voted into being, some of them are contradictory, but it was making loopholes for themselves. Again, it's hard to imagine for political figures, but just imagine with me if you will. Uh, they also devoted to knowing the scriptures, and that's what we see with Paul, uh, and that's what we see even with Nicodemus and with some of the Pharisees that did come to know Christ, that did show faith in Christ. Spoiler alert, uh, Jesus dies at the end of Matthew, but it is Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two Pharisees that come and rescue his body, demonstrating that they have this faith in Jesus being who he said he was. We see Paul, a Pharisee, coming to faith. And there's references to other Pharisees who followed Jesus as well. And so even though we're kind of painting them as the bad guy, Jesus forgives sins. Amen? So they were devoted to knowing the scriptures, but they devoted themselves to knowing the scriptures for their own good. Now, I think at their hearts, they really wanted to know God. But their God became themselves. Their God became their knowledge. Their God became so many other things than God himself. Um, but ultimately, and to kind of summarize everything else, they thought very highly of themselves. Uh, the reason they didn't care for Jesus was because they called him a teacher, but they said he didn't go through the schooling that we did. Um, it's, I can't imagine being a lawyer or a doctor and somebody walks in and just says, hey, I'm also a doctor. And Granted, I never went to college or I never went to school in any way. That's kind of how they viewed Jesus. Don't call yourself a teacher or a rabbi. And eventually the Pharisees would become the rabbis during the time of the early church. They would kind of transition into this um, rabbinical form. The Sadducees, again, we, we don't know a lot about, don't know their beginning, how they got their name. Uh, I was taught when I was little, how do you, uh, what are Sadducees? And the best way to remember them is, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. That's not where their name came from in any way. But the Sadducees, again, not much is known about them for sure. Uh, more than likely, they represented the high priest position. So when we see the names of the high priests during the trials of Jesus, uh, they were Sadducees. Uh, more than likely, their families, their extended families, the priesthood, a lot of the priests uh, at that time would have been considered Sadducees. And although people didn't care for them, they actually had the controlling part of the Sanhedrin. So this 
the Sadducees made the law. And you're thinking, well, how can that be? Very simple. Uh, they were probably the group that profited the most off of the corruption of the temple, uh, off of the corruption of so many other things. So in saying that, the Sadducees actually welcomed the Roman government. And that's why the majority of people like the Pharisees. The Pharisees spoke ill against the Romans, whereas the Sadducees were totally fine with it. Uh, they were okay with the Roman government taking over. In fact, the Sadducees are the ones that normally wrote letters directly to the emperor, which you only do if you have a lot of money. And the Sadducees would have had a lot of money and would have had tie-ins um, with the Herodian family. They would have tie-ins with the emperor and they used those to their own advantage repeatedly. Because as long as they were given kickbacks from their corruption, a blind eye was turned. So we see um, that they, most Jews did not care for the Sadducees. The Sadducees set themselves apart from uh, other, their fellow Jews. Uh, they um, supported the Romans. Uh, they were very interested in preserving themselves. And again, they didn't believe not only in the resurrection, they also didn't believe in spirits or angels. And they just thought your life, live your life to the fullest, because when you die, that's it. It ends. So now I want to look at how we recognize symptoms of self-righteousness. Recognizing symptoms of self-righteousness. This is my second point if you're taking notes, and I hope you are. Recognizing symptoms of self-righteousness. I want to look at both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but also look at ourselves. Because in order to really uh, confront this, we have to recognize it in our own life. And I want to say right from right from up front. This is something I battle daily. This is something, and I've told people, I went to churches who rewarded self-righteousness because that's where I did best. I worked at places that rewarded self-righteousness and because I knew I could work for it and I knew I could outdo you uh, as long as I really set my mind to it and as long as you didn't look at my heart and see the horrible corruption in my heart I knew I could put on a good show. Uh, I could say I was trained my whole life to put on a show in religious surroundings. And it wasn't even until after I was married that I was able to recognize the self-righteousness in my own life. And I remember being so mad at the Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees when I would read the Bible. And oftentimes the people that upset us the most in the Bible are the people that remind us the most of us. I had a pastor who said the reason we get irritated with our wives and our kids or our spouse is simply because it's the parts that remind us of us. We don't like little three-year-old mirrors running around pointing out our faults. And that's kind of, I think, what the Pharisees are to me. And so rather than hating them, I've learned to point the mirror back at myself and say, what is it about them I see in my life that needs to change? And so I, I wouldn't say that I'm a uh, former self-righteous person. I'm saying I'm a continually recovering self-righteous person. So I want to look at how do we recognize symptoms of self-righteousness in our own life. And again, I'm doing this with you. This is not something uh, I think that any one of us thinks that we're the only one doing. Number one, self-righteousness always wants to make sure people see your good works. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, some of the times that Jesus confronts them, he's saying they go out in the open square and they pray and they use big words and they speak in this weird way and making sure everyone, and they would thank, thank you, God, for not making me a sinner like that guy. And that is actually how they would pray. They would compare themselves while they were praying just to point out how good they were and to point out how bad everyone else was. Uh, he points out the Pharisees again, saying that when they go into the temple, they bring a big bag of money and say, you know, make sure people notice how much money that they're putting in the offering. And so everything that was being done by the Pharisees, they wanted to make sure people notice. This is the opposite of humility. This is the opposite of servanthood that we see from Jesus and John the Baptist. Uh, the other thing they did is they made sure that people relied on them. Uh, they wanted people to come to them with their problems, not because they wanted to point them to God, but they just wanted to make sure people relied on them. Uh, that they wanted to always make sure that people came to them with their problems, that people came to them with questions about the law or the Bible. They set themselves up to be the end all. Uh, the third thing we see is they had, and again, when I say they, I mean me and you as well, we see an entitled attitude. Uh, that's why John tells them, you think you are who you are because you're sons of Abraham? God can make these stones sons of Abraham. He wants them to know that your birth, what family you came from, your education, as the Apostle Paul would later say, all of those things are worthless. They are completely and utterly worthless. And I love John the Baptist as we kind of compare and contrast the Pharisees and Sadducees with John the Baptist. John has given everything else up. He's wearing a camel cloak with a leather belt, eating locusts and honey. He's gotten rid of everything else. Why? Because he doesn't have that entitled attitude. He has an awareness of what he actually deserves, and he lives to the fullest for God. The other thing is they did not see themselves, and they did not see others as God sees them. Uh, we want to get really into the details here. This is where we can have extreme bias towards somebody else because they don't think like us politically. This is where we can have extreme bias to the point of racism for somebody else who doesn't look like us, doesn't come from the same. This is where we have a breakdown in social um, uh, stereotypes or, or a way of viewing somebody as lesser than ourselves because of their background, because of their family situation, because of where they live, where they come from, what country of origin. This is a huge root of a lot of the problems is the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't see people as God sees them. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 9, it says when Jesus looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them. He saw them as harassed and helpless and oppressed he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he knew they needed the good shepherd. The Pharisees and Sadducees, and you and I, we are born with a bias. We always are trying to figure out who we are better than and who we need to work towards being like. And it is this horrible thing that is a sin attitude that embraces each and every one of us, is we do not see ourselves and we do not see others as God sees us. And the last one I want to hit on is that when I try to describe self-righteousness, I usually view it as it comes from what I call spiritually plateauing. 
Uh, if you're losing weight and you, you're doing great and you're doing great and then you hit this and you just can't seem to break out of this certain weight because you've plateaued. And spiritually, I think we do the same thing. You come to know Christ or you uh, have these spiritual highs and you're, you're growing and you're in God's word and things in your life are changing and people are noticing. And then you kind of get to a point where now more is going to be asked of you, like losing weight. Well, now you have to cut this out or you have to do this many more exercises. You have, like, boy, I'm just not there. I just don't want to take that extra step. And we do the same thing spiritually. We have those things we like to hold on to. When it's more is being asked of us, we start to plateau. And I kind of view it as we start to build this platform and then we, we get comfortable there. Don't ask us to go any higher, but instead what I'm going to do is as people approach my level of spirituality, I'm going to start stepping on their fingers. I'm going to start trying to push them back off the platform. As a kid, we'd always play King of the Hill. It's what poor kids do. They find a mound of dirt and somebody stands at the top and pushes the other kids down and it's a game. It's called King of the Hills. At least that's what I was brought up believing. So that is how I view spiritual as we build our own mountains. We climb to the top and anyone else who tries to get close, we try to push down. Anybody else who does get higher than us, we point out the wrong areas of their life, completely ignoring the areas of our own life and the areas that we need to continue growing in. And that is the heart of self-righteousness, I believe. Um, that is where we really start to develop this idea of, well, I'm better than you and I'm not as good as that guy, but you know what that guy does? And that we, we fail to see the other sins in our life. We fail to live in humility. We fail to see ourselves as God does. So it brings me to the next point. Again, John the Baptist tells them to produce fruit. And I know last week I said we would be in John 15. However, we just don't quite have time to get there. I can't encourage you enough to read it. I just want to point out what Jesus is telling his disciples as they are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane more than likely. He tells them, I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches that don't produce fruit are cut off. The branches that do produce fruit are pruned so that they can do it even more. But the picture is this. If you want to produce fruit, if you want to produce good fruit, then you have to be plugged into the vine. There's a song that we used to sing, I, he is the vine and we are the branches. His banner over me is love. That's the hand motions that go along with it if you want to practice at home. But he is the vine, we are the branches. Our mission in life, our God-given mission is to produce fruit. And if we are not producing fruit, more than likely we are not attached to the vine correctly. Again, I want to be very clear. The vine is Jesus Christ, the, the word of God. We know Jesus by knowing his word. And so Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling you and I that if we want to produce fruit, which is our God-given command, we must be closely attached to the vine, but also he is going to continue to prune away things in our life, maybe even things that we really like to make us produce better fruit. And so this is what John is communicating to the Pharisees and Sadducees, saying you brood of vipers. You think because of who you are, you think of because of your position, all of those things that who you are, produce fruit that goes along with living a repentant lifestyle. Because if you don't, the ax is at your roots, ready to chop you down because you are being a worthless 
tree and you serve no purpose. This is a very, very strong word that John says that Jesus follows up with. Again, in John 15, we see so many other writers of the New Testament using this analogy of Jesus being the vine and we are the branches. We are to produce fruit. Now, the idea behind producing fruit is that fruit points people to knowing Jesus Christ. If we live a good life, but do not point people to Jesus Christ, we are living in a self-righteous way. We are living for ourselves, and we are living to make ourselves look good, not living to make God look awesome. So that's John 15 summary. Please, please read it. Please memorize it. Uh, it is just a, a very powerful passage. So what is fruit? What is this fruit you are talking about? Well, again, if you were listened last week or watched last week, mentioned Galatians chapter 5. So we are going to spend our rest of our time in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Again, this is Paul writing. This is probably one of Paul's first books that he wrote. And he's writing to primarily Jewish people, a former Pharisee, writing to Jewish people explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, This is what he says in verse 13, starting verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. A longer passage, because I think it's extremely important to point a couple things. First one, the last year, we have talked so much about the distractions, the dissensions, people leaving churches in mass, churches splitting, churches splitting over whether to wear masks or not, churches splitting over you name it. This is such a true passage. It says, be careful as you bite and devour each other because you are destroying each other. We are destroying each other. So this is an incredibly strong passage. Again, the other thing he says is now these Jews think they know the gospel and so they're abandoning everything. 
And Paul says, no, you have freedom, but it's freedom to operate in the spirit, not freedom to do whatever you want. And then the other one I want to point out is he says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are extremely strong words. As we've said, this series we are calling Your Kingdom Come. We want to operate in this kingdom. We want to know how to live representing God's kingdom well to point people to God. So as we're doing this series and we see a statement that says, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, we need to pay very close attention. This should be something that we, again, memorize, meditate on, focus on. But let's look at what this is. The first one, the first area I want to talk about is walking in the flesh. Walking in the flesh. Now, I'm going to kind of put a bunch of these together as they're uh, listed. We don't have time to go into great detail on all of them. But the first three, sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery, these are all tied together. This is anything that is sexually immoral. Uh, and what is sexually immoral or what is this incredibly degrading or this incredibly perverse, this is anything that is done outside the, the bounds of biblical marriage. Biblical marriage being a man and a woman uh, in marriage with each other in a marriage relationship. Anything outside of that, and even inside of that, in a degrading, that's where debauchery, that's where this impurity comes from, it is to be a thing that honors God. And so, uh, a lot more detail there, but anything outside of marriage as well, any type of sexual touching outside of marriage between a man and wife is what he's talking about here. That's walking in the flesh. And just a side note, uh, if you think that the society that we live in now is is bad. We do not even come close to when this was written. We do not come close to the sexual morality, the, the sexual nature of the culture of the Roman Empire. Um, not going to go into great detail about that, but just know uh, we are not even close in the way that it was celebrated in culture at that time. Uh, the next one, again, grouping them together is idolatry and witchcraft. And this is one of the ones that uh, would, we would see with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, idolatry is placing anything in between your relationship with God. Anything that you place as more important than your relationship with God and what he has commanded us to do. And those things that can kind of be habitually interrupting that, uh, continually uh, breaking up our proper fellowship with God would be considered idolatry. Uh, witchcraft would also bring with it um, at that time would have been the mixture of hallucinogenic drugs, if we want to get really into the weeds uh, uh, in witchcraft. So it isn't just necessarily uh, worshiping Satan or uh, being involved in the spiritual world outside of God. It was also um, causing these mixtures of hallucinogenic uh, drugs. Uh, hatred, which is hostility towards someone. Again, this would have been one of the things that the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees demonstrated regularly. Um, it was a very, this type of hatred in Greek is a very personal type hatred, not just like, oh, I hate the Boston Red Sox. It's like, no, I hate this guy and here's why. It is a very specific, with a very specific um, type of violent type hatred. Uh, discord is causing contention, causing problems between different parties. Again, that is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at their heart is they just cause contention. Jealousy, which is wanting something somebody else has, which would include skills. Uh, that would be 
um, a, a jealousy of, um, boy, I, me and Michael Jordan are basically the same basketball player. Uh, I'm just so jealous to a point of, I want that so bad what he has. Uh, so it isn't just necessarily, I like his car, it's I like his abilities as well. I wish they were mine and I keep focusing on that. Um, fits of rage, a burst of anger. Uh, which again is not walking in the spirit, but walking in the flesh. Selfish ambition. And this is where we start to really see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what makes them up and what also we find in our own life as we confront self-righteousness. Selfish ambition, a strong drive for personal success, usually at someone else's expense. Dissensions. Uh, dissensions and factions go hand in hand. Dissensions, discord that splits a group. Factions is a group of people with a common person, uh, with a common purpose who split from another group. So think of church splits. Think of different problems that we're seeing right now. Envy is resentment towards somebody else's success or possessions. Drunkenness can be described as an excessive use of alcohol or other ways of impairing your ability to think properly. Paul always says, be sober, and orgies, which is really an occasion for excessive eating and or drinking with moral uh, debauchery ensuing is the biblical definition. So that's walking in the flesh. And again, I encourage you to go back through those. The next part is walking in the spirit. Walking in the spirit. And really when we focus on walking in the spirit, all those things about walking in the flesh, which is why I went through them quickly, Walking in the Spirit, if that is our focus, if that is our intention, those things of walking in the flesh fall by the wayside. We don't have to worry about them. Because when we follow walking in the Spirit, when we're following the Spirit of God, when we're in fellowship with God properly, those other things we recognize right away. When we are in our proper standing with God, when we can recognize where we are supposed to be, when we see ourselves and we see others as God sees us, we can recognize when we're walking in the flesh quite quickly. At least that would be the goal. But Satan loves to trick us. But walking in the Spirit, the first one is love. Now understand, walking in the Spirit, we're going to look at these in a spiritual way as opposed to in a worldly way because they are very different. Uh, how the world tells us to love and how the Bible tells us to love, very, very different ways. So when we talk about love, that walking in the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, bearing these fruits, the first one is love. How do we love God? How do we love others? If you've seen our Hope Church t-shirts all around, uh, I'm pointing like this, nobody in here is actually wearing one, but if we were outside, you'd see them. They say, love, equip, send. That's what we want to make sure we always are putting in front of people, to love God and love others. As this passage says, the most important command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the first command is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second command is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. When we are loving God passionately, when we are loving God in the way that he calls us to love him, we begin to see other people as he sees them. We begin to see ourselves in a proper light as well. So how are we demonstrating love? Second is joy. And again, 
giant contrast between joy and happiness. When we're so caught up in self-righteousness, we're always so focused on pointing out other people's wrongs that we're not causing people joy and we're not demonstrating joy in our own life. When we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace and everything that God brings into our life, we don't deserve and yet he continues to bless us in ways we can't imagine, that is where real joy stems from. And by blessing, I mean sometimes things are blessings that we wouldn't necessarily think are blessings, but God has this huge overall plan. And when we rely in his sovereignty and rely that he knows what's best, we can have joy even in difficult trials and situations because of who God is. The third one is peace. How are we demonstrating peace? We were called to be ministers of reconciliation. We were called to the ministry of being peacemakers. So peace carries with it, again, a different perspective spiritually, a different way to go about peace in this world than what the world tells us is peace. Uh, forbearance. Now, if I had you up to this point, if I had you at love, joy, and peace, forbearance will get you. Forbearance, or in other words, long suffering. One of my biggest frustrations in meeting with different people is when they say, well, it was going like this and this, but you know what? It was just too much. And they make spiritual excuses for giving up on people. We're going to talk a lot about discipleship this summer, but I want you to know that discipleship is a long game, that relationships with people is a long game. Uh, usually, if we, we've adopted, and myself included, a, a worldly mindset, we tend to view things as the very short, the very temporary, and what's next. Biblical relationships are the long haul. They will last for eternity, uh, one way or the other. And so, how are we forbearing? How are we suffering for the long road with people as a way to point them to Christ? If we're giving up on people, if we're giving up on marriages, if we're giving up on children, if we're giving up on relationships too fast, uh, we are not demonstrating that fruit of the Spirit. So it makes sense that it goes from forbearance or long-suffering right into kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Kindness and goodness. Um, again, in Greek, they mean two different things, but ultimately it's putting other people's interests ahead of your own. Not just being kind to people because they were kind to you, but being kind to people, being good to people, demonstrating goodness to them because of understanding what Christ has demonstrated to you. Uh, faithfulness. Again, that's the long haul. <laughs> that is maintaining over an extremely long period of time. So you're always saying God is so faithful to us when we are so unfaithful to him. How are we demonstrating faithfulness to God and following him but also faithfulness to those people around us. How are we demonstrating that fruit to the people that are in our lives? And then lastly, but definitely not least, self-control. Self-control. How do we control our tongue? How do we control our actions? How do we control our thoughts? Little secret, you can't. It is completely through God and his Holy Spirit. But a lot of times when we are not demonstrating, and all of these things are things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not demonstrating, uh, among many other. And again, the main point of bearing this fruit is to point people 
to Jesus, to point people to repentance. And so John the Baptist is telling them, you are not bearing fruit. These attributes are not showing up in your life. Therefore, you're not pointing people to God. You're pointing people to yourself. Understand, self-righteous people, myself included, we can do great things and we can wear a Christian t-shirt and we can make it seem like we're doing it for God. But really, if I'm being completely honest, which I am, I would go home happy that people got to see me doing something good. And I still fight that. I still fight that because it is so hard. I need to point people continually to God. I need to point people continually to the Jesus that forgave my sins so he can forgive them too. And the Pharisees were pointing people to themselves. Self-righteous people point people to themselves, get them to rely on themselves rather than pointing them to God. Now understand, it's hard to realize when we find out that we are more like the villains than we are the hero. And in this, Jesus is the ultimate hero. And we don't have to be, but we need him. We need him, and that ultimate hero says to live like him. And it's not under our own power, but it's under the power of the Holy Spirit that he has given you when you make him the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life to guide you. Again, when we look at something like self-righteousness, we start to realize I'm more like the villain in this story. And it's never, never fun. So how do we examine if we are walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit? Um, we say this all the time. It's spending time in God's word. It's praying. Uh, I like to think of growing up in the mountains. There were places where you would be driving up around mountains and driven in mountain ranges really all over the world. And sometimes there's this huge cliff embankment off the side of a road. And the only thing there is a white or yellow line. That's all you have to protect you from messing up and going off a cliff. So what do we do to build those guardrails in our life? Because if we just think we can do it alone, we're as foolish as just put a painting a white line thinking that's gonna protect people from going off the side of a mountain. So how do we build guardrails? How do we build concrete embankments to keep us knowing? How do we put those wake-up strips on the side of the road so that we know when we're getting too close to the edge? We do that by spending time in God's Word. We do that by spending time in prayer, by meditating. But also, that's why we're told repeatedly to find ourselves in communion or, or in fellowship or with other people. That's why the word one another is used so many times in the New Testament. We have to rely on each other in community groups, in discipleship, in these different areas to make sure that we are continuing to grow on this path. See, the Pharisees lived to point people to themselves when they should have been living to point people to God. And this is the giant contrast with John the Baptist and the Pharisees and Sadducees. John was bearing fruit, but the people who claimed to be closest to God, the people that claimed to represent God, failed to see the Messiah when he was standing right in front of them. The people that claimed to know God best failed to see the message that John the Baptist was preaching. And so the best way to combat self-righteousness in our own life is to live humbly, 
before God and daily recognize our desperate need for His grace and for His Spirit to be our guide. When we try to live separately from God's Word and His people and use ourselves as the standard of what is good enough, we will fall. Every day we need to make the choice to so closely rely on God and His Word that He has so graciously given to undeserving sinners like you and me. And only then can we truly walk in His Spirit.